You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. We have Liz Burr in the house on The Go Show. She's a digital media executive and guru, and we're very thankful for her to come on the show. How's it going, Liz? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. You know, you're from L.A., but you've been in the New York City digital media streets for a while, a long Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walk our audience through uh, your story growing up in L.A. and then coming to New York. I'm actually originally from New Mexico. Uh, I was born on a farm. Well, I wasn't born on a farm, but my grandparents were farmers. Uh, So we lived with my grandparents. And so when I was about one years old, we moved, my mother and I moved to live with some family here in LA. And so specifically we lived in Compton and Watts. We kind of went back and forth between different relatives for a little while. And, um, you know, my mom actually tried to, my mom didn't finish college, but she tried to take some classes at Cal State Dominguez Hills. And eventually um, she had a job in Orange County. She actually used to, I remember, she used to get up and leave at 5 a.m. from Compton to get to work at 8 a.m. And then she would leave work at 5 p.m. to get home at 8 p.m. So um, my mom actually worked for some software company that was eventually got swallowed up by Microsoft, um, which this happened in like the late 80s. Um, But mostly uh, when it was time for me to go to school, my mom, since she worked down in Orange County, she decided that I should probably go to some better schools that were down there. So I spent most of my childhood between Orange County and a couple of years I did with my grandparents in New Mexico. You went to high school, you know, you went to college. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. In high school, I actually read a book, College Planning for Dummies, my freshman year. That book changed my life. Uh, because none of my parents had finished college or gone through any kind of competitive process. Um, So I was just at a bookstore and um, got that book, read it front to back, and just said, hey, this is my strategy for getting into a good school because I knew my parents couldn't afford uh, expensive schools. So I ended up actually at MIT for undergrad, and um, it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. What was your major at MIT? Um, Comparative Media Studies. Okay. Yeah. So there, actually, what's great about that program is that their motto is, uh, we prepare you for jobs that don't yet exist. And I felt like that was a really uh, good thing that I wanted to be about because I I really like being on the bleeding edge. So a lot of classes I took were classes that had never existed at MIT before. They were always offering new subjects. Um, It taught me a lot of different media theory over the years and I think I got a good grasp of like how we got from pre-written word to the internet um it's very comprehensive you end up going to USC Mm -hmm. for grad school Mm -hmm. uh and then what happens uh, after that yeah so USC I did I was at Annenberg I did a digital media program that again a new program nothing that had ever existed again I thought sign me up that's where I want to be so I did that program and in the course of doing it I got an internship at uh, PBS working in their new media department um and eventually right after I got uh that internship they hired me so I did that for like a year and a half and I enjoyed it. My job was basically just trying to figure out how to repurpose our television programs for the web and how to make interesting um, how to make interesting experiences online for our audiences. Um, I really liked it, except it was very slow. 
And I wanted to be on the bleeding edge of things. And so this was, you know, probably like 2008 at the time. And I remember I had come up with this idea for a Facebook app. And I thought it was going to be amazing. It was going to work with one of our TV shows. But my problem I had was that I first had to define what Facebook was to the executives at my job. So I said, hey, this is what Facebook is. Then I had to explain to them why our brand should be there. And then I had to explain to them why my idea was awesome. And so it was a little hard to kind of, for me to have to go through that process because I just wanted to go right away into like product development and design and get this thing shipped. So um, I got very frustrated with that. So on the side, I actually did some consultation for various clients. So um, I worked in the startup space, advised uh, one startup. I advised your company, Mogulam Media Group, <laughs> as well, um, and a couple other um, companies. And it was just mostly around digital strategy, um, publishers. I think my my role or entrance into the space was around content, so like blogging and audience development before it was called audience development, um, SEO, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so I did that for a couple of years, uh, just independently. I didn't really have aspirations to, uh, build some like agency or anything like that. You know, I just wanted to kind of be very flexible and do my own thing on my own time. Uh, so I liked it. You know, when did you have that spark that I wanted to study media? I'm interested in media. Like, was there, was there a specific event or person that kind of said, Hey, I want to get a degree that relates to media? Yeah. So my stepdad, actually, he is uh, he's a producer now. <laughs> but when I was in high school, he was a production assistant and he did a, a lot of production assistant shoots. Uh, he did music videos and he did commercials. And sometimes he would bring me on set with him. And I think just being exposed to like like being on set at age 13 was just like really cool to me. And, you know, I got to go on some of his cooler shoots. And I think for me, I knew that that's when I wanted to work in some sort of creative capacity. But uh, on the other hand, I'm also a nerd. And <laughs> so I'm just really into tech and things like that. So I would say um, I've always wanted to work in the intersection of tech and media or, or tech and entertainment. And so I would say that initial spark came from the media side, just working with my stepdad um, at work and just, you know, he does side projects too. And then, uh, you know, once I got to college, I think that honed in all of my like real nerd stuff and yeah. I kind of got that crossover. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned you were a nerd, I'll call it geek. <laughs> you know, when you look at the lack of women, mm -hmm. uh, black women specifically mm -hmm. that are in tech, that are in digital media, uh, do you think it's more of a internal cultural thing or is it more of an external thing in terms of, hey, it's Google's fault. Hey, it's Facebook's fault. Hey, it's the system's fault. Or do you think it's something going on culturally more so uh, in terms of how we perceive uh, and promote being a geek is cool? Oh, I definitely think it's more external. It's more external. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I don't know. I I hear these experiences where people say that kids, geeks say that they were traumatized by other black kids calling them geeks when they were kids yeah. and or saying that they're trying to be white. I don't I like all my experiences. I've never had that experience. I've always been a bookworm. I've always been a nerd. I've had cousins 
who maybe harass me for being a nerd, but not saying like, oh, you're trying to be white. I think they're just picking on me because I was the youngest yeah. <laughs> and I was well behaved. <laughs> yeah, I have a, uh, a different experience, but I feel like if you had a pie chart in terms of uh, black culture and what's promoted, what's yeah. what's cool, who's True. successful, yeah. your role models, right? There can only be so much stuff in the in the pie chart and you have a lot of athletes right Mm -hmm. promotion parents want to brag that hey my son or daughter they went to uh university of washington they went to usc they're playing ball you know and so a lot of the energy Mm -hmm. and resources and cultural equity we have seen people be successful in entertainment athletics and so all there's a disproportionate amount of cultural equity that goes into these other fields not that these fields are bad Mm -hmm. but it's at the expense of other things yeah i think i think part of that i do agree with you there i think part of the problem there though is that people our people are not necessarily aware of all the other options that are out there for career uh endeavors Right. So like everyone knows about being a doctor, being a lawyer, being an athlete um, or being some sort of celebrity. But people don't know like a product manager. Right. They don't know how much a product manager could make. Um, They don't know engineers or like engineers, a very like high level, mysterious type of career path. Yeah. And they may, you know, engineer can mean a lot of different things. And so I think a lot of it just has to do with exposure. And maybe like education on this. I mean, I still have to explain. It's still weird to me to explain what I do to my family. Yeah. You know, like they'll ask me, what do I do? And I'm, you know, it's still, I, I work in product and um, and I still try to struggle to explain to them what they do. They're very proud of me. Yeah. And they'll definitely brag about me to the rest of my family and their friends and things. But I think like trying to get a tangible uh, explanation out of them is is difficult, I think, because it's just kind of a foreign uh, area of work but you would agree that when you when you look at the the problem of uh, a lack of geekness uh, in black culture or the promotion of geekness in black culture that it can't all be external meaning that we're going to wait for Silicon Valley big tech white folks to do something uh, and then we're going to get more geeked up in the culture. Uh, would it be there? You do believe that there's room for internal optimization in the community. Yes. In terms I, of stuff that, that we can do, that we can change. Yes, definitely. I just think that some there's just a lot of education and awareness that probably needs to happen in order for us to kind of get get there. Yeah, and I, I think I know it sounds small to folks, uh, but when I uh, listen to uh, 444. Mm. And Jay-Z starts talking yeah. about Afrotech and yeah, yeah. talking about legacy wealth mm-hmm. and talking about VC funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I believe black culture. It's a step in terms of uh, reprogramming, right. uh, you know, acknowledging that the culture is not perfect. There's some problems and that we have to reprogram the culture for for excellence. We got to optimize it. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think it's because we're shunning it, though. Yeah. You know, I think it's just like, hey, we're just not aware or we don't know a lot. And a lot of this also just has to do with the images that are, we are see of ourselves in media, right? So, like, 
you can have like a Facebook movie, but can you have a Facebook movie with a black leading black role? Probably not. Like we haven't seen anything like that. And so I think that Facebook movie at least maybe introduces some kids into like, hey, this is a type of career path that you can go to quote unquote get rich. But, um, you know, that had like a lot of white people in there. Right. But we don't have like a black version. I, my assumption is maybe if we have more black faces doing lots of different things, then that might help move the needle for us a little bit. For sure. I want to share with you a great company called TopTal. That's T-O-P-T-A-L. This is a company that I use if you're in the market for a freelancer, uh, whether it's an engineer or designer, this is one of the leading companies that's going to help you identify and hire top freelancing talent. Uh, you can go to moguldom.com forward slash TopTal. You click on that link and register and someone will get right back to you to get more information. Be sure to uh, check out TopTal. We worked together for about eight years, yeah. uh, right? <laughs> what did you hate the most about working with me over eight years? <laughs> Keep what it like real I with the audience. The what, did, what did you hate the most? But you have to average out, of course, the, the full <laughs> eight years. It can't just be the yeah, stuff yeah. at the end. Yeah. Um, I don't know because there's so there's so many things that make you very unique, Jamarlin. <laughs> <laughs> That's being and, kind. And, um, you know, some of them were stressful at the time. However, I feel like there's so many lessons I learned. So it's hard to be like, but you, there's, there's, me. there's one thing like, <laughs> hey, you change things too much. I don't know. You changing things kind of made me helped me stay well equipped for change. Right. Yeah. And now I feel like All right, we're going to go get into the positive stuff. I need something <laughs> negative, something negative. Uh, like objectively, like you're the consultant coming in and you're like, look at this leader here. Yeah. Uh, this is one thing that this guy really needs to work on or that annoys me. Mm, I would probably say. Nepotism. You could say that too. No. Um, I would probably say like, uh, mm. Maybe not promoting from within when we got to like a certain scale. executive yeah. level, yeah. right? Like we had a lot of executives who came in and didn't understand our business very well. Yeah. Or at least how we do things. Maybe they understood the space, but they didn't understand how we did things. And so there created a lot of disconnect. And I guess like, you know, it just was a lot of time to ramp up. Yeah. And get synergy. And, and you know, in looking back at when we were at like, you know, 80, 100 employees uh, mm -hmm. around this time is one of the things that we should have done uh, as a company is invest in the leaders, the loyal leaders who, who have been with the company. They understand the original science that we mm -hmm. had. Uh, and you invest in management training more in terms mm -hmm. of you're scaling up internally mm -hmm. versus, you know, bringing in these folks from other companies who kind of get lost, who, yeah. who are at, at risk of getting lost. Or yeah. at least helping them understand like, hey, we know you work in this space for a long time, but this is how Mogulam gets down. So you're going to have to figure out how to make this work. It's not something you can kind of just come in and like do something drastically different because, you know, we have our secret sauce for a reason. Right. And we're trying to build upon that. And I think sometimes people came in with like different context. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the other executives would say that Moguldom was so successful for so long, meaning a lot of things went right, is that the we, the management team, mm -hmm. we were resistant 
mm-hmm. to 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 doing certain things to kind of scale up to to change yeah. uh, or mature the secret sauce a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so what did you love the most? Now that we got the negative thing, <laughs> what out, did out I the love most? the most, or what did you, what do you appreciate the mm. most? I would say a big thing that I liked was the ability to work in a lot of different contexts um, or roles there. I had like really good opportunities. I probably couldn't go anywhere else yeah. and do unless I started the company myself. And so I like for me specifically, you know, I helped launch your studios in New York. Um, you know, I helped, I got to produce a lot of content. Um, you know, I worked on like the content press side of things as well as ran your whole product division. Um, I got to like help launch new websites. I really, I'm really into design. So like I had a lot of good, I think for the full time that I worked with you over the eight years, five years as an employee, um, I got a lot of experience under my belt across different areas mm -hmm, yeah, and things that I really wanted to do because I'm definitely very multifaceted in terms of my interests. So that was pretty great. We break up mm-hmm. and you go to, <laughs> <laughs> professionally speaking, we break up and yes. you go to Elite Daily, yep. uh, a company that has a lot of momentum. They're doing a lot of kind of social media viral stuff. Mm-hmm. Talk about that and then going to Daily Mail. I went to Elite Daily and they had probably been acquired by Daily Mail for about a year Um by the time I arrived. And so what I liked about Elite Daily is that they were, um, you know, being with Moldem was like scrappy and very small, right? I had been through the very early stages and, you know, even through the more mature stages, but uh, Elite Daily was pretty, was bigger as one single website. And so I wanted to know like, what was it like at like a mid size kind of media company? So at elite daily, you know, I also just needed a break from working with you for eight years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my uh, time at elite daily was really for me to like chill. I just, you know, I wanted to do something that would keep me uh, preoccupied and interested. I didn't want to like completely uh, just be bored, but I also, uh, you know, I just wanted to get some new experiences. And, and you mentioned you wanted to back out a product and, and you go to mm-hmm. Elite Daily and you're working on uh, paid marketing and audience and, development, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and analytics. And what type of budgets are you kind of managing there? Yeah, so at that time, we probably, I was managing a budget of about 350 k a month. Wow. Um, all that was And is most to, of that's going to Facebook, right? Yeah, it's yeah. going to Facebook. And I was just buying monthly uniques. So it was kind of cool because I really got my um, I really got a model down in terms of how many uniques I need to buy so I could get to a certain comp score number. Yeah, there's something going around Twitter about kind of what do most people misunderstand about your industry? Uh, Uh, And when I think about that is I think when people see like a BuzzFeed, uh, a Vice or or some of these other uh, platforms, would it be fair to say that most people don't understand how much money a lot of these publications pay for traffic. Yeah. Uh, And so for the uh, media company or website that's paying for traffic, uh, can you share with the audience some of the the kind of considerations or reasons that they're spending millions of dollars a year on paid traffic? Like, what are they looking to do? For the most part, you know, I think at least in our 
case at Elite Daily, we wanted to hit a specific Comscore number of monthly uniques. And if you don't know what Comscore, it's just a, an industry-wide analytics uh, program that advertisers look at to say, like, how many people are actually on your website so that they can decide if they want to spend with you or not. So there's a few ways you can do, like, digital marketing. You can either buy page views um, or you can buy people. So I focus at Elite Daily on buying people so that I could get us to a specific Comscore number. Um, and it became really hard to do this because Facebook kept changing the al algorithm. So before where we might get X amount of Facebook users organically every month, we were starting to get less and less organically from Facebook, which then meant we had to supplement that by buying more and more people from Facebook every single month. For the audience to understand is a lot of these media companies, they're going to pump up their traffic what I would call artificially, right? I'm going to spend millions of dollars on Facebook or Twitter. And if Comscore, pumping up your Comscore numbers is the play. Uh, so you spend a lot of money, you spend maybe $5 million a year. Uh, and the, the bet is you're going to get more advertising from having a higher Comscore number. Of course, the advertisers look at Comscore and they go, whoa, look at all the traffic. A lot of people love this site. And then, you know, the, the bet is that the advertising dollars will flow in. The other side of that, though, is that if you're spending a lot of money on paid traffic and the people are not coming back, there's a high risk that what if your sales team does not close the deals? What if the advertisers don't bite on the Comscore numbers, which could put you in a very vulnerable position? Mm -hmm. And I would say, like, Elite Daily at least spent a lot of money to have consultants tell us this. <laughs> Yeah. And to kind of guide us that way. I would say de they definitely don't spend the same amount of money that I used to spend. They've since been acquired from um, from Daily Mail by Bustle. So I would say they're especially judging from their Comscore numbers. They're probably not buying nearly as much traffic as I because it to doesn't buy. it doesn't work yeah. uh, like it Facebook was before. Keeps yeah. Changing their algorithm and just yeah. making it worse. So it's kind of, it's a losing game. If yeah. you're, especially if you're buying a lot. Right. Like I bought over 10 million uniques a month. Yeah. So that's insane. That's an insane budget to have to try and maintain. So, um, and those people don't return every month. It's a very low engagement from that traffic. Yeah. So, yeah, Lee Daily definitely, uh, from what I know, doesn't spend nearly as that. And was that there a lot more. of debate uh, within Elite Daily and Daily Mail? about diversifying off of Facebook, that this is risky. We're going to be zinged. We're going to be panded at some point. I would say it definitely was like, hey, we need to figure out a way to not spend this much on Facebook every month. And we did have a strategy in place uh, to get us off of that high spend every month. But they were acquired by Bustle before we got through that strategy. You were a big believer in the podcast format uh, <laughs> yeah. very early on. Um, how did you fall, up, fall in love with podcasts? You know, okay, so one thing I didn't mention is that I was one of the founding members of VerySmartBrothers.com. Uh, we started that site in 2008. It was me and Panama Jackson and Damon Young. And back then was actually we started a podcast together. So that's when I kind of like figured out how does it all work? How do you host this? Because I was a tech person. Like those two wrote, but I did all of the like tech and strategy and stuff. So part of that was figuring out podcasting. So I really got into it um, yeah, I would say around 2009 when we launched our first podcast, we kind of deserted it. <laughs> it was very difficult, I would say, on a technical aspect 
to execute as well as hard to get any traction just because a lot of people were not into listening to podcasts. It was definitely a very geeky space. I mean, it's still kind of that way, but I just see a lot more podcasters, a lot of different interests, um, and also just a lot of people, different, you know, different races. Uh, a lot of women are doing podcasts and stuff like that. So um, it's an interesting space now. I'm, I'm glad to see that it's uh, matured. Uh, so with the podcast industry uh, blowing up now, and there's a lot of uh, new money coming into this space, media companies, New York Times, a lot of folks are investing in this space. How much uh, of the the growth of podcasting has to do with the big claws of the duopoly of Google and Facebook, that those two monsters are not in the space. And it's it's possibly uh, the most organic medium right now to connect with users without having these Silicon Valley kind of monster entities just gobbling everything up where the where it just destroys the, the, the medium. Or puts pressure, uh, significant pressure on the medium from growing. In terms of, for example, programmatic, automated mm-hmm. advertising, yeah. right? So the robots come in, they crush the CPMs or the revenue you can make on a website's page or in some cases video. So the robots are taking charge. People are ar- arbitraging. The big companies are gobbling up all the revenue. Uh, and there's little left for the ecosystem. But with podcasting, these monsters are not in it. Yeah, I think part of that has to do with the fact that podcasting necessarily still isn't standardized. You know, like there's a lot of different endpoints that people can access uh, a various podcast or even just uploading one to uh, to the Internet. But you agree that do you agree that it's been a kind of material benefit to the podcasting ecosystem that Google and Facebook their claws are not in the space. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's kind of, yeah. And even, you know, Apple kind of initiated podcasting, right? Yeah. But they've definitely been a very, I guess, relaxed overlord, if you will, uh, uh, through the space. Like, you can still just, you know, create a podcast and put it on Apple for free. It doesn't really cost much to do. You just have to figure out your hosting. Yeah. But I think there's, uh, I think there's still some uh, ways in which podcasting needs to mature, uh, you know, like analytics is still kind of, yeah, like, for sure. kind of, you know, inconsistent. I think that they will probably eventually try and come and control the space. But yeah, Google I, just launched a podcast app. Yeah, there's cre- they're creeping in and I could definitely see them buying one of the, the podcast platforms such as Lispin uh, or, you know, some of the yeah. others who roll up podcasts. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's going to they're going to start stepping in. Yeah, I feel like podcasting is in is currently in that like web 2.0 space that the internet and blogging was in back in like That's exactly uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so, I, I I totally agree with so that. So if the marketers get a hold of everything, then everything's going to go to hell, yeah. I think, cuz I feel like they ruined the rest of the internet. Yeah, one of the things that's <laughs> interesting uh about podcasting is the amount of inventory you create with one podcast. When mm-hmm. you think about uh, uh, the average listener on a podcast uh, for this show, um, it reaches over uh, 30 minutes. Um, and you're creating a lot of ad inventory um, uh, if you have, of course, the, the right uh, uh, content pieces. Uh, but it's a, a efficient uh, way to, to create quality ad inventory where the, the users are highly engaged, where you're competing against someone quickly watching uh, a video clip or 
clicking on a web page for two minutes. Uh, it's just a different type of uh, setup. Uh, okay, so let's go into Monique and Netflix. I want to talk <laughs> talk to you about that because this issue it touches on a lot of points uh, I believe that are going on in the culture and in big tech. And so to to recap this issue, my understanding of the issue is you've had Negroes, a lot of Hollywood Negroes, uh, I would say, they seem to side with Netflix when Monique challenges, you know, getting a fair deal on her programming or her show, meaning that she feels that she was lowballed. And what struck me was black folks are lowballed across the board. This is not me. This is the federal government where the federal government has come in and looked at various industries. And they have said that there's systemic discrimination across industries in the United States. Right. So you Negroes out there, do you see what Netflix is paying everybody else? Do you see how much of you are driving the growth and engagement of Netflix? Uh, uh, this is a black box. You don't see anything, but you won't give this actress the benefit of the doubt when she's going up and talking about this beast. Monique may be wrong, but I believe the community deserved to give her the benefit of the doubt because Netflix is a black box. And when you look at their, their board, none of you people are, are on the Netflix board. None of you black folks you guys, you guys not running Netflix. It's all mostly white men. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that? Um, I do think some people, at least from the circles that I pay attention to, I think people agreed with her that she was uh, lowballed. But I think a lot, at least the black people that I saw that took issue with this, took issue with maybe the way in which she went about she it. went about it True. and like how yep. she talked about it. And um, I think her husband's like her manager and people were kind of wondering about like, what's his deal? Because he seems a little strange. Uh, But I think that (laughs) (laughs) I think Uh, she was right to speak out. I don't. But I saw people questioning whether what she was saying had any merit, Mm -hmm. meaning that I saw folks uh, suggesting that they probably gave you a fair deal. Essentially, uh, it was in that box. Yeah. At least some of the some of the the viewpoints uh, that I read about, uh, yeah, and is it, like, hey, you're just complaining because you're not good enough to get a better deal. True. However, I think maybe I don't know if those same people also saw prior to Monique coming out about this that Amy Schumer came out and was like, hey, Netflix isn't trying to give me the same amount of money they gave Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock, and everyone was. Like, hey, you're not that. Yeah, everyone yeah. was shading her. It was like, well, girl, your jokes aren't as good as theirs. Yeah, for <laughs> so sure. that's why you're not getting the same amount. So I don't necessarily begrudge uh, Monique for coming out and saying this. I mean, I don't really follow her comedy that that closely. But I think that, um, yeah, people who took issue with her saying something are in the wrong. I think that they should really understand. Give her more kind of leeway. Yeah, and, definitely. Yeah. And I personally try not to take issue with how people, quote unquote, protest, right? So if you have issue with the way she went about it, it is what it is, right? People protest and will, you know, state their complaints 
the best way they know how. In terms of probability percentage, mm-hmm. when you look at Netflix, when you look at that, that management team at Netflix, what probability percentage would you say that Netflix does not have systemic bias in terms of how it treats the black content creator versus the white content creator? I don't know about percentage wise, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's worse than what everyone else deals in all yeah, other yeah. industries. But let's just look at Netflix. <laughs> let's just look at Netflix. What's the probability that Netflix is giving black content creators who can't go anywhere else, just like the Democratic Party? Like, where are you guys gonna run to? Nobody wants to buy black stuff, right? So Netflix uh has a lot of leverage. Uh what's the possibility that when you really look into how much black subscribers are engaging with the content, driving mm-hmm. the stock price of Netflix, supporting the platform, and how much they're paying the black creators, mm-hmm. what's the probability that there's systemic bias? If, let's say, the federal government came in and said, hey, we want to open this stuff up. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily know what the probability is. I don't even know if I could quantify that. It's an estimate. That's all I want. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know yeah. generally what is the going rate for bias. <laughs> yeah, all right. So And then would say if that's higher or lower. Right, so I would assume what I would, it's a little higher. Though, okay, what I would say is. the nature of the industry. When you look at the management team of Netflix and you understand the history of systemic bias in America across industries, it's highly improbable that black content creators are getting a fair handshake in terms of when, when you look at the engagement that they're providing, the money, the value that they're providing with the Netflix platform and how they price the black content creators deals. I think you'd have to consider the people though, right? So like Michelle and Barack Obama have a deal with them. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be, there's going to be outliers where there's going to be people who uh, get really good deals. But when mm-hmm. you look at, the total universe of black content creators, mm. uh, yeah, most likely there's, there's going to be systemic bias. Yeah. And, and I, Hollywood has a problem in general. So it's not like Netflix is going to be separate from yeah, Hollywood, yeah. right? So we're better than Hollywood and we treat you fair. Right. So I think part of the bias, though, is just general negligence, right? It's not that like, hey, we are biased against black people as much as, or black content creators, as much as like, we are just not taking the time to care to pay attention to them. Are right? we, so are I would we, say, are, are we just trying to make the most profitable deals and we know that we can exploit mm-hmm. uh, other folks not backing black content in an equitable way so we can take advantage and price your group lower? Potentially. However, I will note that they've been going really hard with marketing their black content recently with the whole strong black lead movement. OK, let's talk about that. So so Monique is banging against Netflix as you've had since slavery. You have a group of black folks come in and start defending Netflix because Netflix is paying quite a few black elites, folks in Hollywood. Netflix has partnerships. Uh, so the community is kind of divided over this issue. So some folks are defending Netflix. They're saying, hey, Monique is some crazy, uh, disgruntled woman. Netflix treat their people good. Mm-hmm. You know, master treat us good. <laughs> you know, look at all these other folks <laughs> eating over here. This is just a crazy person. So, so the community is divided. So Monique says Netflix most likely is lowballing her based on race and gender. 
after Monique uh, says this, Netflix decides to fire one of their top executives for saying the N-word in a meeting. Mm -hmm. Netflix puts out a press release saying, hey, we don't tolerate this, blah, blah, blah. So after Monique says this stuff, a big executive at Netflix is using the N-word just in a meeting, just openly, right? And so after this executive is fired from Netflix, they they could have been working on this before. They put out a pro-black <laughs> ad, you know. Netflix is like Black Panther. Netflix is like <laughs> Black Panther Party. Netflix is like is like the Nation of Islam. Netflix is pro-black. Yeah. We just fired this big executive. You guys are not on the management team. You guys, you guys, you guys are, you know, are getting lowballed, but we're conscious. We're the conscious network. We're the folks who are supporting conscious black creatives and content. So to me, this is this is a strategic, right? So so when they there's fire- definitely some strategy going on, but I yeah. don't know if all of those are necessarily created. So like the strong black lead, I became aware of that campaign in about March, early March. And I said, hmm, this is just related to kind of what I do. But I was like, hmm, they're really going after black audiences and black content. Um, and then, you know, months go by, they're getting momentum and all that kind of stuff. And then I saw the executive announcement, but I heard the T is that this had happened a while ago that he just got he just got let go or finally got let go. Um, but then that promo piece that you saw for strong black lead was tied into the BT awards. I think that I think what's likely is that Netflix had had that campaign ready to execute during the BT awards specifically because they knew they had a captive black audience to launch this campaign with. So I think the executive who had been saying the N word probably had reached his last final days of when they could let this go before they actually triggered. Yeah, I think they were working on that ad before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I also just heard that, you know, he should have been fired a while ago. The incidents had happened a while a while ago. Obama. Last week, Obama was in Silicon uh, Valley uh, raising millions of dollars from the kind of go-to elites in Silicon Valley. He's going to the venture capital firms. He's going to the liberal elites uh, who could pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for access to get in his ear. He leaves Silicon Valley with bags of money for the Democratic Party. (laughs) Really? Is it problematic for you (laughs) the corporate side of the Democratic Party are super cozy with the venture capital firms, Google, Facebook, and, you know, they have had Cory Booker, they've had an unholy alliance with Google, Facebook, venture capitalists, where they're too cozy. And here's why I say this. is because Obama is still very influential in the party. He's going to be out front uh, in the elections coming up. And that if Silicon Valley, these elites, who I believe are part of the problem with the inequality in the society, they are part of the problem with the divisions in the society, they are part of the problem that produced a Trump. And in Facebook's case, once the evidence uh, kind of comes out, most likely Facebook was used to flip the election uh, with Facebook operatives inside the Trump campaign. And most likely those folks were working with the Russians, meaning that the Trump folks had a big wallet. Facebook respected them and allowed them to run racist ads during the campaign, anti-black ads to, to help fill the fire. 
pro-Trump fire. But are you uncomfortable with Obama going to Silicon Valley, getting bags of money from the elites out there, and all the, all the corporate elites in Silicon Valley being in his ear, being cozy with him? Does that make you uncomfortable? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime any industry kind of can do that, it's a problem, right? So I feel like in some ways, Silicon Valley is like the new Wall Street when like Wall Street was very like too influential in certain kind of ways. I think even the workforce, right? The workforce of Wall Street was problematic. And I think the workforce in Silicon Valley is problematic, right? It's just kind of shifted. Um, in some ways, you could also argue that maybe Obama helped make Silicon Valley to be this way, right? So like when he was running his campaigns in 2008 and 2007, he embraced the tech industry. He was like the first to, you know, really embrace like LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter more than any other candidate. Yeah, the co-founder of Facebook helped Obama, Mm -hmm. uh, was running his digital media Mm -hmm. marketing. So there's been like an incestuous relationship with Silicon Valley and the Obama corporate side of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think they have a very, uh, they scratch each other's back and they have for years, right? Does that make you angry? I don't know if it makes me angry. It doesn't make you angry? But that's because I support Obama, generally speaking, right? So if it was another candidate that I didn't like, I'd probably be angry. (laughs) But if the same party has responsibilities Mm -hmm. to regulate these beasts. These mm. beasts are very influential. Yeah. Google, Facebook, they're crushing other businesses, right? They're crushing consumer privacy. They're policing what content you see and which content you don't, which content is promoted, which content is not. For example, Twitter, a month ago, they unverified uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some folks say that, hey, why do you take his verification away based on the qualifications to get verified in terms of public figures? But other folks who have real power, like Trump, mm-hmm. they stay verified. But, you know, when these systems are policed, and a lot of our people sometimes are calling for the police, roo, 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 call the police, <laughs> R. Kelly, you know, this rapper, roo, roo, bring him. But when the police come out, you going in first, right? So, so, so be careful what you, what you open up. So why does Obama get a pass on being cozy with Silicon Valley? I'm not aware of any big regulation, regulatory review, as these Amazon, Google, Facebook, as these companies uh, are, mm-hmm. are, are getting bigger and bigger and more influential, more concentrated, more monopolistic. As these companies are getting bigger and bigger, the Obama administration is totally silent. But Obama's in the bed with this group. So I'm thinking at the big picture, yeah. right? So we can't have the leaders yeah. having a master in terms of the, the white liberals in Silicon Valley because these people are part of the problem in terms of the inequality in society. Generally speaking, yes. Yeah. So I just don't know if, like, what's the best way to have avoided that problem, right? Cause it in, kinda, in terms it feels... of, like, hey, there's not, there's not a lot of places I can get the money I need to bang back against the Republican Party. So... I got to get the money from these guys. I got to get the support from these guys. No, I think they're his natural supporters based of, I feel like both of them came up together in the same time, right? So like Obama definitely leveraged the internet to get his message across more than any other candidate did. And I think that tech 
at least in the way that we know it right now, came up around the same years. You know, that was like the Web 2.0 era. There was a lot of change going on. And so I don't know if we could have avoided this because it just seems like both Obama and Silicon Valley really saw a surge around the same time. It's not as if Silicon Valley had existed for decades. But Obama... And then he kind he, of he 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 helped create this problem of yeah. the the market concentration, the abuse of privacy, of having these monopolistic entities and their claws over everything, uh, and 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 kind of having a unhealthy control uh, over winners and losers in the economy in society. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's not to say that all of Silicon Valley was in his on his side or that they're all Democrats because I don't think they are. I think, you know, there's some people who are problematic uh, or, you know, don't necessarily see the same views as Obama would. What are your thoughts on the the surprise win, at least among the corporate side, the corporate side of the Democratic Party, the surprise win of Alexandria Ocasio? Do you have any thoughts on, you know, some of the stuff that you read in terms of opposing her or the support? you have any thoughts on her? Yeah, I actually was very surprised that she won. I'd never heard of her, and I live in New York City. Uh, I don't live in the Bronx and Queens, which is where she serves. But um, generally speaking, you know, when it comes to these kind of off-cycle elections, I, as a registered voter, I always notice that most of the people on the ballot are incumbents. So it's like an incumbent who's been here for like 20 years and there's like some random new person. And so um, I was very surprised that she was able to overcome that. So then when I looked closer at her campaign, I thought her marketing was amazing. I thought that, you know, visually, her just because I like design, but visually her design was really good. I thought all of her commercials were really good. And I think that combined with her putting in just a lot of legwork in terms of reaching out to her constituency, it, it made sense. Um, it definitely reminded me a lot of Obama. Obama also had really good design, very good strategy, uh, you know, had good marketing. I think a lot of politicians actually have horrible marketing, generally speaking, yeah. and they kind of just rely on their name. You think that that could be related to her age in terms of she, she represents a younger yeah. politician. And, and for the audience, if you're not familiar, she represents the Bronx, will be a freshman congresswoman. We'll see what happens in additional like additional election cycles after this. Um, I don't know if the Democratic Party is going to shift in her direction in any kind of way, but at least you know in New York it it makes sense that that could work. I don't know if that's going to work in other Democratic districts across the country. Yeah, I was happy to, to find out that she was uh, following me on Twitter oh, yeah. uh, before the election. Really? So she, she's getting extra points. You uh, must be saying crazy <laughs> stuff that she yeah, likes. Uh, <laughs> but she's connected to Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. uh, she was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And I'm going to throw something out there, a hypothetical, and I want you to keep it real uh, on the answer. So Kamala Harris at the top of 2020 of the Democratic Party uh, and Cory Booker, uh, that these are the anointed kind of, you know, mach machine leaders that it looks like one of them at least is going to be on the ticket in terms of who's anointed by the corporate side of the Democratic Party. So Kamala Harris uh, and Cory Booker as VP uh, in 2020, they run in the primary against Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio. Who would you lean towards? Oh, that's a hard one. I used to be a very big fan of Kamala Harris. Early on, I think, you know, being from the state of California, it sounded like she'd been doing some pretty good stuff. Um, same with Corey. 
I think, you know, he, but this probably skews more because he was very uh, web-based and kind of, I could see more of what he was doing because he embraced the internet so well. Um, I'd probably say ideologically, I'd probably skew more to Ortiz. And Bernie Sanders. Uh, I'm saying they're on the know. same ticket. You have to. Uh, yeah, so Bernie Sanders at the top, mm, Alexandria Ocasio as a, a VP. One. Yeah, I'm not really feeling Bernie like that. I never really did. And I don't want to be ageist, but I just feel like, you know, he's too old now. <laughs> we need someone who's going to live a long time in the office, potentially. <laughs> but you're not banging against Bernie Sanders' policies, though, in terms of. His policy prescription. So let's put the gray hair, the kind of yeah, old yeah. skinny Santa Claus look uh, to the side. <laughs> yeah, policy-wise, I probably... Mm, that's a hard one. Uh, yeah. I would skew more towards Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio. is because I know that Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, that they represent a side of the Democratic Party uh, that is is scared, for example, to to speak up for Palestinians. They're mm. they're scared to bang against uh, Netanyahu uh, after six you know uh, sixty Palestinians are, are murdered. Uh, you see Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. They're quite close uh, with the Silicon Valley elites. Uh, a lot of the the corporate interests, and it's not a coincidence that for most of their political careers. They have not championed removing money from politics. Mm. You see, mm -hmm. with Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio, these people are saying, you, you are running on a treadmill. Be, until you remove the big wallets out of Silicon Valley, the big wallets out of Wall Street, the big wallets, the foreign interest group, the lobbyists, your vote is not going as far as it should. Mm -hmm. Black folks can be voting all day. But the corporations and the lobbyists, that's who are in the ear of the leaders, meaning that these, these Democratic leaders are coming into power and they got debts to pay. They don't got debts to pay necessarily to you. Mm -hmm. They don't got necessarily debts to pay to Watts, who don't have any money. Compton, don't have any money. Bronx, you know, you don't have a big wallet to, to sit down and get in Barack Obama's ear. You don't have a big wallet where that could influence policy. Uh, and I believe. On the top agenda of black America, there needs to be a change where one of the signature issues is backing candidates and pushing to get big money, lobbyists, out of the picture of the political system. If you really love the Go podcast, one way to support us is going to moguldom.com, M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com forward slash survey. Fill out that quick survey. That gives us better information on our audience. It helps us with our sponsors. Uh, that's one big way you can support us and keep our movement going. Go to moguldom.com forward slash survey. Thank you. Yeah, I think I would say that Kamala and Corey definitely honed in on the status quo of uh, politics, which just says that you need all these, you need big donors, you know, who cares about having a bunch of small donors. You need a lot of big corporate donors. You need people with big pockets. And I at least think with Ortiz and Sanders, they don't believe that. However, didn't get that didn't get Bernie very far in the last primary. I thought it ran. did. I thought he was on the edge. It looked like he was on the edge of winning. Of course, they have a a, a delegate system that some yeah. people will say it's, it's rigged. Uh, and the Democratic Party 
they were manipulating, at least I believe that they were manipulating things in favor of HRC. Uh, uh, yeah. But, but he to, may have gotten farther if Hillary hadn't been there. Yeah, but to me, Ocasio, at least her messaging, uh, I can't say that I'm an expert, but Ocasio represents where the Democratic Party needs to go. They need to go to the left. Stop all this kind of Tim Kaine, I'm going to try to please more white folks. Uh, mm. I'm going to uh, uh, not go too hard to Black Lives Matter. I'm not going to speak out on, Pal- uh, you know, uh, speak up for Palestinians. But the safe, middle of the road, lacking conviction side of the party, uh, I think there needs to be a coup in the party. And this time, I think Bernie almost did it. Yeah. But the folks who want to take the money out of politics, I think this time they're going to knock that corporate machine, that Silicon Valley machine, that elitist machine that's controlling the Democratic Party. You're going to get knocked out in 2020. Uh, that's my prediction. You're going to get knocked out and the Democratic Party is going to move more to a populist left. Uh, uh, and the, the, the more that the big money comes out of politics that's good for black America. That's good for everybody. I mean, it could happen. I don't know if it's going to happen as soon as 2020. And I don't necessarily, I think, you know, in some ways, Obama, maybe not policy wise, but strategy wise, I feel like Alexandria, it's Ocasio-Cortez. She uh, had a very similar message to that, that Obama had in his early election days. You know, it's like, oh, I come from this in terms of hope. class family. Like this, mm-hmm. like a kind of a, and I represent a, the common a, a Jesus yeah. narrative, a political Jesus narrative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that, you know, it could happen, especially if we continue to see more momentum that she was able to do. I just don't know, like, how effective is that going to be in places where maybe they're racist or maybe they some of her policies are a little too alienating for th- for them. How does this Trump stuff play out? We're deep in the Mueller investigation. Uh, how do you see this stuff playing out? Does he end up in jail? Uh, does he just kind of get off? Is he reelected? Like, how do you see this stuff playing out? Uh, I hope he doesn't get reelected. Um, I mean, I think best case scenario should be that they convict him on some like state crimes. So he can't potentially pardon himself unless they change the law. Um, a lot of people don't know that. You know, a lot of people I talk to, yeah, they don't realize, uh, they think, you know, Trump's just going to get off the hook. But the way Mueller is setting this up is there's going to be state charges and the pardons, federal pardons, as you mentioned, are not going to work at the state level. I feel like he needs to get caught on whatever shenanigans he's done illegally prior to uh, running for president. And then, you know, you can't be president if you're locked up. Right. So so I'm hoping that that's the way it has to go, because, you know, Congress is not going to vote for impeaching him it's probably just never going to happen um so i don't think that we can get him on election charges necessarily that's where i i depart from the consensus i understand why folks would say this congress they you know they don't care they're going to protect trump you know i understand that point of view but before the nixon tapes Mm -hmm. uh of course uh it wasn't a popular view to uh impeach nixon I'm a little bit more optimistic that when the evidence, the full body of evidence comes out, 
are some big stuff leaks. And then, of course, you have witnesses with Cohen, his former lawyer, looking like he's about to flip. Mm-hmm. Manafort in jail right now. Most likely he's going to flip. Uh, he probably doesn't want to get raped uh, in jail or, you know, be vulnerable in, in jail. That I believe once the 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 kind of you can't debate the evidence comes out. In Nixon's case, it was the tapes, right? Yeah. But I believe we're waiting for the, the Nixon tapes part of mm. this case. And I do see uh, a strong possibility uh, that you get enough Republicans uh, to impeach him. But regardless, I I, yeah, I, yeah, regardless of that, I only see two scenarios. One, Trump goes to jail at the state level. Uh, it's not clear whether pardons can work because it will be tested at the Supreme Court. I believe he's trying to tamper with the Supreme yeah. Court with you know a lot of shady uh, moves. But uh, there's there's a question of whether you can pardon your co-conspirator. You can you can you can mm-hmm. pardon someone who helped you commit crimes. But I believe he's going to either go to jail uh, once all this stuff comes out, or and this is uh, should be concerning. Uh, for folks is that Trump, I believe, based on his psychological profile, he could create some type of event, black swan event mm-hmm. that, that 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 could put the country into some type of war or, or, or something in that in that in that direction. Hmm. Uh, or he could go uh, fly Air Force One into Moscow. So you mean, wait, going back to the Black Swan event. So you think he'll do something that gets America so angry that they'll get rid of him? Like war? No. So for so if you're Trump and you're saying, hey, if this stuff keeps on going, I'm going to go to jail, right, wow. for the rest of my life. I'm going to die in jail. So there's another out for me. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I may have to do something, but it could be like a catastrophic event are something that could prolong his situation. And, um, you know, there is a point of view also is that if he trips America up into some type of uh, event, the Constitution could be suspended. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Or if there's a civil war, Mm -hmm. if there's racial kind of resistance or uh, a lot of blood in the streets of America where the Trump supporters are saying, hey, you're taking our leader away from us. Right. Uh, We elected him. And you guys, you undemocratic liberals, you guys are taking away the the leader. Essentially, you took him down with all these deep state actors. Right. And so it's not just me, Roger Stone, other folks. And it looks like Trump's messaging. He's getting people ready that when they come for him uh, in in the final days, you could see violence. Uh, in the in the streets, and so this would set up in Trump's case. Uh, you may want a lot of violence in the street in terms of Trumpers really cranking up the stakes, is because maybe the country says, including at the state level, governors, you say we have to heal the country, we have to come together, and the only way we're going to come together with this violence uh, in the streets, possible uh, assassinations, the only way we're going to come together is you got to let Trump go. And then the people will, will stop acting Maybe. up. I think your third theory, him going to Moscow, is probably more likely. Uh, Air Force <laughs> One, yeah. Uh, well, well, that's been the, the place of choice for spies 
yeah. uh, agents of Moscow who have been tipped off that, that the feds have found out that they're spying on their agents, they have left the country and lived the rest of their lives in Moscow. And that's also a, a possibility. Yeah, I think something's got to be done. Definitely not re-election. I don't know how long this Mueller stuff is going to go on. You know, it's almost, we're almost halfway through his presidency, so. How does it make you feel that 40% plus of the country still supports Trump? What is it, what is, how does that make you feel? Yeah, that's hard. I think, I think some people in that number uh, are, are more apathetic or they don't think things, I think they're in denial about how bad he really is and maybe they have no interest in learning more or understanding but i think you're giving them too much (laughs) no no i think some people are like genuinely just like hey i'm voting and i support him because that's just what everyone in my neighborhood does and i don't want to be the outlier or the outcast so i'm just going to go along with it i think a lot of people are like that on the trump side yes you don't i've talked to some yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm they just going to go along. Basically said was like, oh, well, everyone in my neighborhood votes for him. So that's why I voted. Well, maybe because and you're black, they're not going to they're going to they're not going to pray. Potentially. Tell yeah. you the, the, the real. The real yeah. That's true. Uh, a big piece of Trump. Not everything, uh, because I do feel that. What Bernie Sanders was trying to communicate, what Brexit was trying to communicate to the corporate machine of the Democratic Party. You had Brexit. uh, uh, You had Bernie Sanders rising up. Hillary Clinton, uh, Obama, and some of the others, they were not listening in that people are fed up of the corporations, the elites, how they're manipulating the economy and the rise of inequality. Uh, And so white folks see the rise of inequality for them where they're not sharing uh, in the the upswing of the economy. And there's a populist sentiment. In the center, uh, in terms of, there's white folks on uh, between the right and left, maybe not strong supporters either way, but they mm-hmm. know that what the stuff that HRC and Obama, the kind of agenda that they're pushing is not working for that group. So they're like, F it. I think there's a lot of uh, white fear out there obviously that the country's changing we're losing our identity trump is our last stand this is going to be the last opportunity to fight back against the loss of the country i mm-hmm. think that that's part of it also i think it, it, there's a there's a side on the republican party that says we weren't going to win without trump and we can get the stuff that we want it's just kind of a uh, it may be it may sound unethical or immoral but they're saying hey Trump allows us to change a lot of stuff that we want to change. Uh, so there's, it's like a transaction where I can look the other way because I'm getting a lot of the stuff I want. I'm getting the tax cuts. I'm getting the Supreme Court justices. We're getting good Republican stuff in exchange. I can look the other way on some of the other stuff. Earlier when you were talking about the 40%, you still have to remember that Hillary won the popular vote, right? So, you know, not everyone... or at least the majority of the country is necessarily on his side. But I do think Republicans have finally figured out a way to work with him to kind of get what they need out of it. Um, I just, you know, it's, it's a sad state of affairs in terms of where we're, where we are right now. It makes me 
thankful for Bush. <laughs> thankful Bush. for Bush. Thankful for those Bush years because at least in some ways he had some sort of um, moral compass. He was more competent <laughs> than our current president. Uh, I don't know. I think. Yeah, we're not going to agree on the, the Bush. This is the guy <laughs> who lied uh, and took a lot of black and brown troops and, uh, and white troops uh, in a illegal war uh, in Iraq, uh, essentially mm-hmm. resulting in the deaths on both sides uh, based on a known lie, an open lie. Um, but, you know, Bush aside, what would you say that when Obama was president, you had black folks start talking about post-racial. Mm-hmm. More black folks are start saying it's about class. It's not about race anymore. Uh, America has moved beyond race. Look at look at Barack Obama. Look at Michelle. Look at that chocolate sister in the White House. Uh, America has turned the corner. And so, you know, from my perspective during the Obama years, Obama uh, was and still is, was like Jesus, right? In America... He was going to change America, and America, in, in his election, showed how much America has changed. Uh, from my perspective, black folks got—they let America off the hook on a lot of issues. So when the government and uh, in, in, in stuff is going wrong, people are getting shot in the streets. Uh, Trayvon Martin, we got a black president. We got a black first lady. So because the president is black, America has a a defense where black folks do not crank it up as much as we should because, hey, Barack Obama's president. Michelle Obama's the first lady. America's not so bad. So from my perspective, Obama, this wasn't intentional. Uh, I voted for Obama twice. I still support Barack Obama. I think he sincerely cares about our people. Uh, Black folks, uh, that is. Um, But that this post-racial mess uh, and thinking that America has turned a corner because there's a black president put a lot of us to sleep. We we, We became complacent. There's less activism Right. Why you got to why you got to bang against uh, white supremacist racism, systemic racism? Why do you got to do all that? Because, look, we're going in the right direction. Look at Obama. And so when Trump comes and he shows America, I believe he shows America the truth that this country is massively racist still, that this country is so racist that you probably have more than 30% of the country that would probably support putting black people or shipping black people out of the country still. That Trump exposed America as being much more racist than a lot of the post-racial Obama supporters thought. And that Trump woke a lot of us up. A lot of us are banging harder now. I would now. say Trump maybe woke a lot more people up. But I think there are definitely still black people during the Obama era who were like, hey, like it seems good, but everything's not good. Number one, a lot of people called Obama out just for not doing enough for the black community specifically. 
uh, during his presidency. I think that people, but a lot of people didn't want to say that out loud because they didn't want to talk poorly about a black president because they still wanted to see him succeed. Right. So I think now, though, there is a lot more activism, uh, I think, just because Trump has been so ridiculous uh, with like his conduct and his policies. And it's like a black man could never have done the things that Trump has done or couldn't behave the way that Trump behaves. So I think a lot of people are outraged. But I don't think that I don't think everyone fell asleep during the Obama. Yeah, era. I, I, think I agree. Maybe not there were not, more not everyone. But, out. but what I would say is that there's greater black consciousness under Trump right now than Obama. There's more of us cranking it up, getting organized, uh, putting agendas together under Trump than Obama. And that if it looks like, if Trump goes down without, without any kind of some type of big black swan event, I believe black people specifically are better off going through a Trump scenario than HRC and here's why because what HRC and Obama and a lot of the the more corporate Democrats what they're offering black people in the United States they're offering you kind of slow incremental steps slow change we can't do too much uh hey just wait is you know stuff is going to change Stuff the inequality data is going to reverse. We're working towards it, so they're offering kind of a um, kind of a, a patient agenda. Black folks, you can wait to get your fair share in America. You're going to have to wait uh, on a lot of this stuff uh, uh, that's oppressing us in the United States. However, when you open up a Trump, it opens up the opportunity for more radical change. And so with any big reward, you got to take risk. And I believe that black America is going to be better off going through a Trump than going through a HRC, because what it's going to do is going to open up a more radical side of change coming from the and within the Democratic Party uh, that has opened up a hole for black America to go through which is, has exposed the racism of the United States where people are not people are less inclined to accept that soft stuff of the Democratic Party pre-Trump. Yeah, I mean I do think what's probably happening is, you know, we take six steps forward with Obama, but then we have to take like three really hard painful steps back with Trump, right? But we're still up three steps from, you know, 12 years ago. Um so I think it's going to It's going to go in these waves, and I'm hoping that our experience in the Trump administration is that we will go harder uh, to see more um, to see more progress, and specifically within the Democratic Party, because I do think you know black people. We a lot of us pick the Democratic Party as the lesser of two evils, and maybe kind of fell asleep at the at the wheel in that way. Because I think you know, conservative party has a lot of um policies or beliefs at least that i think they could attract a wider black audience and they do but they don't care about us enough to actually uh work (laughs) pull us over are are you one of those democrats uh who say hey black people just vote just vote uh you need to be voting 
uh, our ancestors uh, died for the right to vote, and you need to be voting Democratic Party every time. Don't matter who's running. You just vote. You just vote Democrat. <laughs> um, I do. I'm one of those black people who says black people should vote. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, um, but I would say that you should vote. You should always exercise that right to vote. See, uh, this is where I uh, one of the, the many areas I break with the consensus, because I actually believe that uh, not voting is a political weapon in that when you think about what black America has trapped between the corporate elitist Democrats who are controlled by people who don't align with the progress of black America, uh, when you're trapped between the corporate elitist Democrats and the racist Republicans, you don't have any option like go there. You can go over here. Two options, Negroes. Which one are you going to pick? So historically, the consensus has said, hey, you got to go Democrat every time because it's, 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 it's not as evil or it's not as bad as the racist Republicans. But we can strategically weaponize the idea of non-voting. And I think tr Trump plays this out where, look, black America can organize, put agenda, an agenda together and tell the Democrats that we're not taking your lobbyist, corporate, elitist agenda. They're giving you all the money. You're listening to them. You're not listening to us. And look, if you don't play ball and compromise with our agenda, we won't vote. So if you don't want, they don't want right the other side either, right? So if you don't uh, want the Republicans to, to go back in power, we need more equity. We need more equity for our vote. We've been voting for you guys at 90%, the mm -hmm. most reliable uh, group that's tipping the elections for you, net-net on average. But what we get back is, is, is so little. And so I believe that one of the biggest weapons in the toolkit for black America is to bang back against the corporate elitist side uh, the interest groups that are controlling the Democratic Party and say, look, if you guys don't stop this crap, if you guys don't play ball with us, the black men and women, they have to stay home. We're not going to come out and vote just because you're less racist than the Republican Party. So in terms of political leverage, I think there's some black people who do that already, though. I think there's a, some black people. Who no are doubt that like, there's hey, some. I'm not no, going to vote at all. Yeah. And I'm not advocating don't vote. Um, but in terms of thinking strategically uh, about how to move the people forward, uh, that needs to be a weapon in the toolkit. That if, if the Democratic Party, the corporate machine, you guys are the one funding the candidates. You guys are making a lot of these decisions. That if you don't put the right people in front of the people, that reflects the wishes of the people. And it's going to be all about the corporations, the elitist, foreign governments. And they're lobbyists. If it's going to be all about them and not about us, stay, stay home. We're going to stay home. And that is a weapon that either we're going to shake things up or we're not just going to play this little slow, slow game. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's a weapon. Is it going to be an effective weapon? I don't know, because in terms of our size, right, population size may not be strong enough to be able to be effective. Oh, no doubt. Uh, I think it is where you have um, 
the the white population in the United States divided, right? And and there's a big enough black population and brown population to tip the thing. And so the Democrats have been exploiting for decades that Negroes, you don't have a good choice. You got a bad choice and a bad choice. And we know that you have nowhere to run. So in HRC's case, I don't have to advertise on a lot of the black media sites because you guys don't have anywhere to run. You guys only got Trump. And so HRC, for example, she held back a lot of uh, media spending with black media. But it's not like a secret. It's like, why spend money on a population that votes 90 percent? All I got to do is get Obama, Jay-Z, Beyonce, come out, perform, meet with Black Lives Matter. And I don't need to go out and get you guys because you guys don't have anywhere to go. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the Democratic Party needs to do more to appeal to our population. Um, and, you know, I, I'm actually very confused as to why HRC didn't try a strategy like Obama's campaigns. But Obama's campaigns were very strong. They're very different. I feel like he laid out a template for us on, on a way to win. And she didn't follow through. And I think similar. How did she deviate from the Obama strategy? Well, I think, like you said, she didn't necessarily pay attention to to everyone. She people she thought she had. She didn't really bother to spend time with them. Right. And I think the states that she lost in some cases, she had that arrogance. It was like, oh, I already got them. I don't need to go talk to them. I don't need to secure make sure I secure their votes. Right. I think she was negligent in that way. Did Obama, um, didn't Obama speak out about that about, in terms of uh, certain things that she did that kind of deviated from sure. his advice? Yeah. yeah. But I think like, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, I think that she followed a pretty good template for in the way in which she ran. Um, it's a bottom up strategy versus top down. Exactly. Yeah. HRC is top down. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think I think me. I don't know why she made that decision, but it is what it is. And I think the next candidate definitely needs to probably take more of a bottom-up strategy. All right. Thanks, Liz, for coming on Go. Uh, where can people check you out on Twitter? It's Cali Native, C-A-L-I-N-A-T-I-V-E. And um, LizBurr.com is my currently uh, outdated blog. <laughs> I'll probably update my website. Soon. Thanks for coming on the show. Let's go. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamal and Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.